From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. Today, uncovering the past, challenging dominant narratives, and teaching the next generation. Later in the show, we'll hear from an educator who aims to teach difficult history with sensitivity and an emphasis on the Black experience. And our next story is one from North Carolina's and the country's deep past. Sometimes wounds don't heal properly. And the physician has to lance the wound. It hurts. It's painful. That's from the introduction of Episode 1 of Echoes of a Coup, the sixth season of the groundbreaking podcast seen on radio. The episode starts with a description of what happened in our recent past, in January 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. It was called an attempted coup, one that failed. But Echoes of a Coup is about a successful coup d'etat in the U.S., It was in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. White supremacists seized political power with a violent overthrow of the Wilmington government and massacred many black people with estimates into the hundreds. It's a history that has been overlooked, undertold, or as one of our guests says in the podcast, straight up lied about. You know, we'll talk about the reverberations of that political violence today, but first, I'd like to introduce you to John Bewin, Director of Storytelling and Public Engagement, Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, and seen on radio host and journalist and audio producer, John Bewin. <laughs> wow, I think you got all of it there. I got Leonita. it all in. Appreciate and that. And of course, Michael Betts, Assistant Professor of Film Studies at UNC Wilmington, co-host and co-producer of Scene on Radio Season 6. That's called Echoes of a Coup. What a great name, first of all. Great Thank name. Thank you so much. It's kind of timely. Um, should it be, but it is. Yeah. So, Michael, I'm going to start with you. So you grew up in North Carolina, you know, and not so long ago, you talk about the first episode, you know, in the first episode of Echoes of a Coup, and you talked about how you went to North Carolina schools, you know, university, UNC yeah. Chapel Hill, Duke, and you didn't even know about the the Wilmington race riots and coup of 1898 until you were in graduate school. So what was it like to finally find out this history? It was it was rather disturbing uh, in the sense that you 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 kind of are left with this idea of what what else don't I know? And for it to be in your backyard, it's such a big deal. Um, and so, you know, it's it's funny. It was really important to me. I, I'm a product of both public and private schools, and no one's teaching this. You know, no one is having these conversations in far more direct ways, at least not when I was, I was um, coming up. And uh, to be able to do this work in, you know, one of the things John and I talked about was trying to make sure it was accessible for educators to be able to ensure that their students here in North Carolina specifically didn't feel the same way that I did growing up. Mm, You know, I was um, in college in Florida, but I interned actually at the Wilmington Star News, my first time ever in North Carolina. And um, so I lived on the UNC Wilmington campus. And 
I never saw anything that would tell me that that part of history, you know, was in Wilmington where I was living. And, you know, as a as a young reporter being inquisitive, I was looking for those types of stories, you know, when I was in right, Wilmington. Right. And I had no idea. I didn't find out until the state of North Carolina. I would leave, like you said, go off to school, do whatever, even get married, have kids, come back to North Carolina to work, <laughs> and bam, there's this commission. I'm like, yeah. What? Right under my nose. So I want to know, did you decide to delve deeper into this once you moved to Wilmington as a professor? Uh, so it's funny you would say that. Um, no. So what really brought this about was there at the Kenan Institute of Ethics at Duke University, there's a program um, put on called America's Hollowed Ground. It's uh, an initiative started by Mike Wiley and Charlie Thompson. And... Um, you know, they had been looking for team members to join that this uh, program so that we can, and uh, let me back up and say, the purpose of the program is to show up in spaces around the country that are often overlooked, that have traumas that have experience, been experienced in those areas, and that artists and, and scholars are making work, but that they may need a little bit extra support in some way, shape, or form. And this team of people that got put together is just filled with uh, some of the most incredible makers and and scholars and educators and what have you. And so for me, when it came to really talking about Wilmington, uh, I was like, we can't be a part of making work and helping other people make work in other places around the country if we're not willing to deal with our own backyard. And so that was really the thing, you know, um, I'm I'm a couple years outside of grad school at this point when this comes together. And, you know, Mike Wiley reaches out to me and says, hey, man, we want to do a podcast. And I said, I would say less. <laughs> I would love to do a podcast specifically around um, Wilmington and in the massacre and coup. And I said, the only way that we can do that, though, is to take an approach that is multiracial. We have to go uh, together. And I said, we have to find a thoughtful podcaster, somebody who people trust to, to be a part of that. And that's what you opened to the door find for John. me to talk to. <laughs> I had to go talk to John. And um, it, I wasn't even done with the question before John said yes. <laughs> well, John, did you, so he didn't have to convince you too much to tell this kind of story at this time. Yeah, that was not a hard sell. It wasn't. Um, you know, uh, as some people will know, Seen on Radio, we've been around since 2015, uh, the show. And one of the first seasons that we did that really put the show on the map was a series called Seeing White, which is basically a history of whiteness and white supremacy and, you know, sort of an explore, fairly deep exploration of how racism functions and white supremacy functions in our society was filled with a lot of history going back hundreds of years. And so, you know, this, this, is, this almost feels like a, a sort of complement or a kind of season two of that in a in a really essential way, although one with with a much more kind of focused and specific story that we're telling that happened over the course really of uh, you could say over several days, but but certainly over a year or two or three years in uh, in Eastern North Carolina and in this state, um, you know, 125 years ago. What a history, and I can't wait to hear more about echoes of a coup. Our co-hosts of this um, this Scene on Radio podcast um, series, Michael Betts and John Bewin. And we'll hear more right after this. You're listening to Do South. You're listening to Do South. I'm Leonida Inge. 
I'm here with John Bewin and Michael Betts, co-hosts of Scene on Radio Season 6, Echoes of a Coup. And if you're looking through your podcast listings, it's S-C-E-N-E, Scene on Radio. I always like that name, John Bewin. <laughs> Thank you. You know, we're going to start off by um, playing a clip from Episode 1. From the time we started doing research for this series, John and I were asking ourselves this question. Why? Why were the conditions of multiracial democracy that had been put in place during Reconstruction, why were they still operative in Wilmington, North Carolina, of all places, as late as 1898? When across most of the South, white supremacists had violently seized back power and begun instituting the crushing apartheid of Jim Crow, Back in the 1870s. This question about why is Wilmington in Reconstruction mode? So, you know, John, what did historian William Sturkey tell you in response to this question? I can remember almost exactly what he said. He said it invites a pessimistic reading and a pessimistic question, which is why was multiracial democracy not shut down sooner in Wilmington, North Carolina, the way it was across most of the rest of the South, right? In the 1870s, 1880s, by this time, just about everywhere else in the former Confederate states, Jim Crow was basically already in place and and black folks had been disenfranchised, except in North Carolina and specifically, especially Wilmington. Wilmington. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's the wrong question to ask why, why Wilmington was the outlier the right question to ask is why did it all come apart in the rest of the South? Why were white supremacists allowed to mangle what had been a burgeoning new multiracial democracy that had taken taken birth after the Civil War? And we really we really took that to heart and and we really did, you know, walk out of the interview and look at each other and say yeah, we, we just got schooled uh, in that interview. It's a really mm. important point. How did it reframe things for you? Well, I think it becomes, and we return to it later in the series, Adrian Lentz Smith, who's a historian at Duke, make, made a similar point, and then we really kind of discuss it a little bit. And, and the importance of that point is that we don't take for granted or consider white supremacy to be the default we don't find it surprising when white supremacy is not in control. And also, it's important to recognize that people made efforts. Like, right, people on the side of white supremacy had to make choices and organize and, and, and get funding and put tremendous energy into overthrowing the multiracial democracy that was still alive in North Carolina at that time. So it's not some kind of, like, natural thing and that it was somehow a curious anomaly that we had multiracial democracy. These are about choices that people make and actions that people take. And this is still true today, right? That's the importance. It is. You know, I need John and Michael um, to answer this question, really. What surprised you the most about Wilmington during those years? Now, we can talk about the man. Abraham Galloway, <laughs> but st- <laughs> but maybe that that was something that was surprising just to learn about his life. It's funny you you would talk about Abraham Galloway in that way. I think what was most surprising um, in in David Soselsky 
in our interview with him, yeah, I had an opportunity to just see him talk at the end of Mike Wiley's performance of Howard Kraft's adaptation of Soselski's The Fire of Freedom. <laughs> um, and uh, it had been the previous November of when this whole thing started for us. And um, Soselski just drew this amazing image of Wilmington and what it was and who this place was and how we get a person like Abraham Galloway. And I, I remember talking to John and saying like, we got to talk to Soselski. He's got to be on the, he's got to be on the series. He's got to open the series. He's got to tell us about Wilmington and what it was. And then, you know, we get him in the studio and he goes even further and you know, I'm a I'm a mega nerd, and so I just love that he gives us the Star Wars Cantina image. For anybody who's remotely close to a space of sci-fi, you just remember how like different shades of people, different species, different everything is all kind of in one place, and they're all very capable. Um, and that's what he's getting at. It's it's this notion of the world that e that exists is built with a fortitude and an intention. And yes, it does have oppression living on the outside of it, but like it's it's very cosmopolitan. You know, well, you make black... me smile. You make me smile <laughs> sort of comparing some of those times. It's like it was like Wakanda. I love when you yeah. said that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's just it, it was I think that that was the thing. And and for me, the, the biggest surprise back to your original question was that we have lost the ability to imagine a world like that. Because the, the impact of white supremacy, the intentional erasing of the record has been so good and so great. And that labor that John talks about of trying to make sure the work of white supremacy stays in place mm -hmm. has been so intense that we can't imagine a person like an Abraham Galloway or or a uh, uh, David Walker or Charles Chestnut or like and the list goes on and on and on of all of these fantastic black intellectual thinkers these politically sophisticated people these individuals who are interested in the well-being of the world and global freedoms and global liberations for blacks we can't imagine those people because that imagination has been erased from our minds. You know, that John, was the most surprising thing. Yeah, I, I, it was surprising for me too. And John, there were some, you know, these multiracial political coalitions you talked about. I believe you called um, the people fusionists. The fusionists. Fusionists. Yeah. yeah. Fusion Tell movement. me about that, and also how white supremacists worked diligently to try to upend, you know, by using propaganda and fear, you know, to help that disappear. Right. The fusion movement was a political uh, coalition that took shape in North Carolina in the 1890s, and it consisted of two parties. The Republicans, you know, the Republican Party really was only founded just before the Civil War. Um, mm -hmm. And it was, of course, the party of Lincoln at that time was the party of multiracial democracy and uh, opposition to slavery and so on. And most most black folks voted Republican. Right. At this time. Party of Lincoln. Yes. The other party in the coalition was the Populist Party. And it was kind of similar to populist movements across the Midwest and other places where it was basically kind of a working class and rural 
white folks party. And these two parties came together and were working together and they were winning elections like crazy in North Carolina in the 1890s, 1894, 1896. As we say, they held the governor's mansion, they, the control of the state of uh, the General Assembly. They held seven of the eight seats in the congressional delegation in the U.S. House, both of the U.S. Senate seats. And they had the support of overwhelmingly of the black people of the state and a significant number of white folks. And this was intolerable in the view of the openly white supremacist Democratic Party. And they began to figure out how to, how they were going to deal with this situation when they realized that they weren't going to win just by the issues because they didn't have the issues on their side and they had to find other ways. It's called a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat of, uh, you know, a rigged, uh, an election rigged with voter intimidation, voter suppression, ballot stuffing, whatever it was going to take, and then a literal coup d'etat in the case of the city government of Wilmington. Well, I'm talking with Michael Betts and John B. Wen, co-hosts and producers of Seen on Radio's sixth podcast season called Echoes of a Coup. And it's about the violent overthrow of the Wilmington government in 1898 and the massacre of black citizens. You know, the podcast does go into some detail about the massacre. And um, we're not going to get into like the details of that here, but I do want to explore aspects of the violent overthrow of the government, you know, the actual coup. So here's how one of your interviewees, um, Lorraine Umfleet, described it in episode three. While bullets are still flying in the streets, the existing mayor and board of aldermen were summoned to the town hall where they were summarily required to resign their position as a representative of their ward in the city. And a hand-selected group of white supremacy supporters were put in their place. The insurrectionists chose Alfred Moore Waddell, the fiery racist speechmaker, as mayor. As each alderman resigned, the board elected his replacement. The city charter allowed the board to replace a resigning member in this way. So they followed the rule of law in the way that this happened. However, the piece that you may not understand is that there were about 200 armed men in the building at the time. So this was all done under duress, and this is the exact definition of a coup d'etat, armed overthrow of a legally elected government. So, Michael and John, that is a really powerful moment. You know, what's it like for you to have been so deeply involved, you know, in the research and hear something so simply put, you know, um, and also just still so shocking, but not surprising, maybe. I'll just say before turning it over to Michael that, you know, when you're doing this work, you record hours and hours and hours of audio. And in fact, my rule of thumb is usually that about 2% of what you record gets used. And only occasionally do you know with 100% certainty that something that somebody just said is going to be <laughs> in the finished product. <laughs> and that was absolutely one of those moments. Yeah, yeah. And, and further to that point, to have the woman who 
Lorraine Umfleet is the woman who was in charge, uh, who was put in charge of the commission in 2003 to uncover the vast majority of the information that we have on 1898 and subsequently 1900 in those ways, right? And um, I think one of the things that was most overwhelming was for this person, I mean, we're talking to her in 2000 or in 2023 at that point, that's when that interview would have taken place. And so literally 20 years later, she's lived with this so much that she can say it in a nugget. And she said so many things like that that just were so overwhelming. Like we would finish the question, she would answer, and then John and I would just like take a breath because we just we just had to sit and live inside of the things that she was she was revealing. So yeah, many of us appreciate her voice. We really, we really appreciated her voice. I also just want to ask both of you, you know, when we think about the language that say the perpetrators of this particular violent overthrow used, you know, like they called it a revolution, you know. And so how yeah. does that kind of relate in your mind to some of the words you hear being used today, like in reference to what happened on January 6, 2021? Yeah. <clears throat> Member of the U.S. House, Elise Stefanik, recently referred to the people imprisoned for January 6th as hostages. Mm. Yep. Talk about a choice, right? A choice of language. We get into this in particular at length in episode four of the series, really kind of a, an analysis and a, and a discussion along with, at the same time as we're telling the story of what happened in the whole century after 1898, what we call a cover-up and a century of silence and lies about what happened. We discuss a lot about the use of language and the different ways in which, so for example, initially right after 1898, the white supremacists who were then in charge were quite celebratory about the victory that they had won, victory in quotes, with the coup and massacre in Wilmington. But then after a while it became, uh, let's maybe just not talk about this so much. And then there was decades and decades in which the people who were really in control of the narrative of this state, prominent historians, people in charge of the school curriculum and so on, just made sure that very little was said about it at all. And then the language then became things like, is it a race riot? Is it, well, it took a while for people right. to, to start to get comfortable using the word massacre. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all really, really important stuff. Mm -hmm. And as is pointed out by one of the folks we interview, Bertha Boykin Todd, it actually took the labor of other communities with Florida and Oklahoma relative to their uh, massacres to get people in the state comfortable with the term massacre. So like that, that labor had to originate elsewhere, that energy had to, to originate elsewhere for us in the state of North Carolina to be comfortable with those terms. Well, gentlemen, thank you for this much-needed history lesson and maybe classrooms across the country, not just the South, will get to hear seen on radio. Well, Michael Betts, Assistant Professor of Film Studies at UNC Wilmington, and John Bewin, Director of Storytelling and Public Engagement, the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, they're co-hosts of Seen on Radio's Season 6, Echoes of a Coup. You're listening to Do South. This is Do South, 
broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Leonida Inge. The state of North Carolina recently commemorated the 125th anniversary of the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. During my long career as a reporter in North Carolina, I've covered the anniversary of the Wilmington Massacre more than once. But there's one facet of coverage I remain curious about all these years later. It's something that came up in 2006 when I spoke to a then 64-year-old Wilmington resident, Lottie Clinton. You did not raise the children negatively. And I found that's been so true you know, with a lot of people that their parents raised them in a positive atmosphere. And um, a lot of people still don't want to talk about 1898 because it's painful. It's painful to them. Miss Clinton's sentiment about parents' reluctance to teach historical instances of racial violence to their children has stuck with me. In New Hanover County Schools, the public school district in Wilmington, the events of the 1898 massacre are taught to students at various grade levels, including 3rd, 4th, 8th, and 12th. But both educators and parents are still figuring out the best ways to teach these difficult histories to children. With me to discuss some ways to introduce and continue these conversations with kids is Dr. LeGarrett King, founding director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University of Buffalo. Dr. King, welcome to Do South. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, part of your work is to educate educators, right? Sometimes there's this assumption that as long as teachers are including Black history as part of their curriculum, the work of inclusion is done. But why isn't that enough? Well, I think there's a distinction between um, teaching the content of Black history and actually teaching Black history effectively, right? Something that researchers have called pedagogical content knowledge, right? The ability to make sure that you teach that content properly, right? So through the center, we hope to effectively teach teachers how to use appropriate instructional and pedagogical methods when they're teaching Black history and race. Mm, You have to give me an example of that, because what you're saying is if one is a good teacher, they have to make their subjects or students want to know this history. Yeah. um, When I think about, let's take, for instance, my my kid, right, who's in middle school. And um, I think the teacher was trying to attempt to teach the middle passage. There was no context um, this was the first time that the students learned about Black history in in that history course or, or about Black people. So number one, the first thing they learned about Black people was that they were enslaved. Um, and then the teacher's instructional approach was simply showing them the movie Amistad. So a lot of the Black parents at that school and Black students at the school were traumatized over that particular lesson plan because the teacher didn't do their due diligence to teach and be sensitive and empathetic to different concepts around race and Black history. So what are some of the other like common challenges that educators face in teaching young students about historical incidents, say like the Wilmington Massacre, for example? Yeah, I think... Um, The research has shown that the majority of teachers um, who are white women from the suburbs, right, um, know very little 
about the nuances of race and racism, right? Um, or they understand race and racism a little differently than I think black parents and black communities and black scholars would, would kind of connect to those particular aspects, right? So there is a lack of knowledge generally around race and racism. And then because they, most teachers were educated in our school systems that don't do a really good job in exploring the complexities around Black history, they lack the knowledge um, around Black history as well. You teach that history is not just about facts, right? It's about the interpretation of the facts. So what's one way um, that distinction plays out, say, in a classroom setting? Right. So um, I teach a lot about how different groups of people interpret history and what history is considered truthful, right? In my, um, you know, understanding, like, Black history is really Black history if it comes from the perspectives of Black people. And when we think about how we how we normally understand Black history is through white people's perspectives, right? For example, when we teach about Brown versus Board of Education, right, the majority of the narratives are coming from not Black people, but I think what people believe Brown stood mm-hmm. for, right? If we really taught Brown versus Board of Education through Black people's perspectives, that narrative looks totally different, will teach about how black principals and black teachers lost their jobs mm. or got demoted, right? We'll talk about the closing of black schools, which was which were excellent, right? The only difference between those schools were the funding mechanisms, right? Um, if you ever talk to any older black person who went to segregated schools, they talk talk about those schools in glowing terms, right? I haven't met one person that didn't talk about their their schools in that particular way. And then also we traumatized a group of students when we began to really integrate um, schools, right? Um, a lot of times racism didn't occur with, with the children, but the racism occurred with the teachers who could not, you know, teach them deeply, right? Or did not want to teach them because they're racist beliefs. And if we begin to trace the history of the achievement gap, it began during integration because we had a bunch of teachers who did not want to teach the students that were in front of them. Instead of improving their improving their pedagogy and their instruction, they blamed the black kids. See, what do you, what do you say when people say our teachers or school districts that black history is American history? You know that it really should all that it should be included as one. And we do know there's school districts in this country today that are trying to or have banned the way that black history is being taught at all. Like some things you just aren't allowed to say in the classroom. Yeah. So on a technical side, yes, black history is American history, right? But it all depends on how you're defining American or U.S. history or even world history, right? Um, If the fantasy that we believe is American history is totally different from black history, right? To truly effectively teach black history, those narratives are totally different from what we've seen through American history because we're not, because we're focusing on black people's voices 
their experiences, how they understood the country, right? And and, and we just don't get that in various different concepts of American history. And most people don't know how to teach, right, through Black people's perspectives. Well, this is a good thing. I guess I've heard there's been, you know, this push for Black history mandates across the country now, I guess, which would require by law that Black history is integrated into classroom instruction in one way or the other. And is that enough, though, to ensure that Black history will be taught well? No, it's not, because it depends on what kind of Black history you're teaching. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout history, um, black history has been part of the educational lexicon since the 19th century. But the problem has always been conditional because it's one of those things where if we teach a black history that does not disrupt the progressive narrative of the U.S., then for most people, um, that is proper, right? So we can teach George Washington Carver, we can teach um, Jackie Robinson, and we teach it in a way that kind of shows Black exceptionalism, you know, through through um, adversity, et cetera, et cetera. But when we begin to start talking about the continued access of anti-Blackness or racist acts or systemic racism, A lot of people throughout history, particularly politicians and teachers and school boards, always have had a problem with it. The biggest problem with many of the Black history mandates is that there are no accountability, Mm. right? If if we learn anything from the anti-history laws that that have sprung up in our country recently, we understand that when you want to hold people accountable, you can do that within the educational space. So a lot of these states who have Black history mandates, it seems like it's symbolic, right, without any enforcement or accountability for many of these school districts and teachers. Um, and, and part of that's part of the state, right? The state's fault. There's no funding um, and there's no oversight or whatever the case may be. But it's more than just having a symbolic law on the books about Black history. I mean, even though we're supposed to be this great melting pot, is it time for, you know, African-American schools on Saturdays? And I know some groups and communities still do that. They never stopped, Mm -hmm. you know. So I wonder, even though that's not part of the public school system curriculum, but are we back at a time where we just need to do it ourselves? Well, I think historically we have been doing it through our Black organizations and Black churches, right? So, um, my wife is part of Jack and Jill, and every time they have an opportunity to um, do something with the teenagers or with with the younger kids, they're always this kind of connection uh, to Black history knowledge, right? Um, the Black church has always been a conduit um, for, for teaching about Black history, particularly during Black History Month. So while... Um, we haven't had it kind of institutionalized, right, within different Black organizations. I think a lot of different Black organizations have continued to do it. Now, the question is, is it enough, right? Uh, even through my center, we have uh, Saturday schools called Black History Nerds. Mm-hmm. And uh, once once a month and four times in February, we're just a bunch of nerds that wake up on Saturday mornings just to learn Black history, right? My business mm-hmm. is Black history, so... Um, you know, we do this thing 365 um, days a year. 
where Dr. LeGarrette King is the founding director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University of Buffalo. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you over this. I got some tips personally, and I hope school teachers that are listening today also get a few tips. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.